Hello, listeners. My name is Rob, and I'm here virtually alongside my co-host Noah. Hello. And M. Hi. The regular cast of Fax Machine, a podcast by and for people who are curious about everything, but especially the things that make them laugh. And today, I am very pleased to welcome our special guest, Rachel Richards. So Ray is a visual communication specialist, science nerd, and she is the creative director of EA Creative and the founder of Coriolis Magazine. So, Ray, thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Um, we're really looking forward to see how your strengths in data visualization uh, translate to podcast form. <laughs> <laughs> Scary. <laughs> Coriolis Magazine, that's so familiar. Where Have I seen somebody's, or maybe somebody I know with some sort of article some in Coriolis famous Magazine? famous author. Your very own. Your very own. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I'm trying to hide behind my script on a Zoom, and it doesn't really, it doesn't really translate to audio, so I guess I'll stop. Famed science writer, okay. Yeah. Costa. Okay. okay. <laughs> That's true. With an excellent piece about uh, COVID vaccines. Oh, well, I was extremely excited to have the opportunity to contribute to Coriolis, which is an awesome and just gorgeous looking magazine. Like, that that website is stunning. Thank you. Definitely worth checking Thank out. You. Yeah, all the science nerds got to get on it. That's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> So also, thank you, Ray, for, for picking a theme for us for this episode. I'm really excited about it. Um, because in this yeah. episode, we're looking to solve the ancient mysteries of time. We seek to find meaning where none is apparent. We hope to unscramble the senseless jumbles before us and uncover the truth. Yes. <laughs> Today, we shall crack the codes. Uh, so, <laughs> Why are you talking like this? What just happened? <laughs> I just went full shatter like, on you guys. <laughs> we're in a Zoom, but somehow like your frame got tighter and tighter very slowly on your face while you stared into the middle distance. <laughs> I was genuinely expecting you to end that with <laughs> as we step into the Twilight Zone. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly. The Twilight vibe. Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. That's how I want you to feel. I want you to be on edge, never knowing what's right before you. Um, the beauty of all codes and ciphers. <laughs> um, but <laughs> in this episode, Noah, M, and Ray are going to orate on obscurity and spin yarns on ciphers as we discuss the best code facts that have ever been. Uh, and so with no further ado, let's get things started with Noah. This week I learned that unlike the Caesar salad, the Caesar cipher is actually named for Julius Caesar. What? Right. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> the, the Caesar salad is not named after Julius Caesar. It is instead uh, attributed to the restaurateur Caesar Cardini from the early 1920s. Uh, he was an Italian immigrant who operated restaurants in both Mexico and the U.S. Uh, he was living in San Diego, but he was actually working in Tijuana, which allowed him to like evade prohibition restrictions. <laughs> wow. Huh. That is... I, that I'm just it's a yeah that's wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah Actually, well basically that's not necessarily like 
you know, cryptography related, but I thought it was a very yeah. interesting fact. I think Cardini's <laughs> is a brand of salad dressing too, and I'm assuming it's the same. Oh, maybe. I mean, that, that's interesting. There are probably only so many in the salad game, but. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, because it was um, it was Caesar and his brother Alex Cardini. So maybe it's like the Cardini. I think they, Ooh. I think their re- their restaurant was or one of them was called the Hotel Cardini. So they may be like a brand. Funny how there's no Alex salad. <laughs> I was about to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you mean so the scene? Let me take you back to 1992 for a question. The scene okay. where Prince Ali Ababwa comes into Agrabah. And there's a whole mm-hmm. parade and Caesar brings Caesar comes because all the world leaders are invited and mm-hmm. there's a huge salad. Right. That's that's false. Right. Oh, that, that is false. <laughs> did this not is... remember that detail. <laughs> At the time, they actually did not have the technology required to make croutons. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. We could just dry some bread out in the sun, though. They hadn't thought of that. Um, <laughs> it seems like now we look back and we're like, wow, the people who lived back in those days were so dumb. But they really were just as smart as us. It's just that we have the benefit of having our like knowledge about drying bread like built on centuries and centuries of, of bread technology i mean since then we've had sliced bread which i mean we're <laughs> the best thing since itself <laughs> at the time we're we're truly standing on the crusts of giants yes. <laughs> oh my, what was my fact about <laughs> everyone um, that was going to be the end of caesar salads yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I'm here to tell you about the Caesar Cipher, which actually is named after Julius Caesar. Um, And anyone who, like me, has completed only the first two or three assignments of an online coding course um, multiple times, thank you very much, um, knows about the Caesar Cipher, also known as the Shift Cipher, one of the simplest encryption techniques that exists, and also one of the oldest. The way it works is that each letter in a message that you want to encode is replaced by another letter that is a certain number of letters away in the alphabet. For example, if your message is, this week I learned, and you shifted 13 letters to the right and also wrapped around to the beginning once you pass Z, your encrypted message would read, Goof jerks for your yerk. <laughs> Thanks for that. I wish I could show you how this is spelled, but it's a podcast. Um, you're just going to have to go and try it yourself with a, a shift of 13. You can actually go either direction uh, with a shift of 13 because there's 26 letters, so it ends up being the same thing. But you, as I basically just prefaced, you can also shift in the other direction. So if we encrypted this week I learned by shifting each letter in the message to the left by four letters in the alphabet, it would read something like Padeo Saggy Honjaws. How many <laughs> different sites? <laughs> if you're thinking to yourself, did Noah just go clicking through every single possible Caesar cipher shift to there look for is. the ones that sounded the funniest? You betcha. <laughs> Some ciphertext is, uh, is, is really, really rich. And I have to say, you've got yourself two strings of incredibly rich ciphertext. <laughs> well, you know what I always say. Goof jerks for your yerk. <laughs> <laughs> But basically, this is more or less the method that Julius Caesar used to send, like, secret messages to his generals. Um, And for this, we have the word of the Roman historian Suetonius in uh, his work, The Twelve Caesars, where he relates, If he had anything confidential to say, he wrote it in cipher, that is, by so changing the order of letters of the alphabet that not a word could be made out. 
If anyone wishes to decipher these and get at their meaning, he must substitute the fourth letter of the alphabet, namely D, for A, and so with the others. Um, and it, even like, apparently Julius Caesar's nephew, Augustus, also used it with a small alteration with the quote, wherever he wrote in cipher, he wrote B for A, C for B, and the rest of the letters in the same principle using AA for Z. So it didn't actually wrap around. If you just had like Z with a shift of one, it became AA, uh, which is hmm. slightly more complicated, um, but still not all that secure. And that's because the major problem with the Caesar cipher is that all you have to do is try all the possible shifts until one looks like words. 25 chances. Yeah. <laughs> or what if the, the biggest trick would just be to like ha- have it not encoded? <laughs> but right. They, it's just gibberish. Why can't I make this make sense? <laughs> it says the troops are going to be there at dawn. What are they saying? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, but so anyway, the major problem with this, right, is that all you have to do, as I said, is try like all the possible shifts. But you could actually get a little fancier by using something like the known letter frequencies in the language that you think the message is in. For example, in English, the letter E is used way more often than other letters, as it turns out. Um, so all you really need to do is figure out what are the most used letters in the encoded message and what their shifts would be based on that. And if like by just some quirk e in this particular message isn't used them you could just have to go and check list second and third and fourth say and odds are one of them's going to be e. the word the actually um, is a really important um, word when you're talking about trying to decipher through frequency analysis um, in english it's hard to say any sentence without the word the so anytime Ooh. you see a three letter word within your uh, cipher text if you start matching e at the end of it you can um, almost always figure out the key and that's because like the- that, that that shift that shift text is so so simple right and that's like even in sort of more complicated encryption like they, mm-hmm. that is what gets people like it like with sort of repeating patterns like i think i i think i'm not sure if this is true i just remember reading something about um how part of what helped uh the allies crack enigma was that so yes. many of the they just got lazy like the the sort of nazi officers just kind of were, were they were always like ending messages with things like heil hitler and stuff like that and it was like looking yeah for those- it was protocol it was nazi uh, language protocol fuhrer was another word that was just constantly used um but the enigma had some um weaknesses because it couldn't actually encode one letter for itself ever so the letter Ooh. F could never be right. So because of that, that was a, a big vulnerability because of that. And because they, they, they more or less just needed about 20 characters. If they figure out like words like Heil Hitler or Fuhrer or certain words that they constantly ended transmit, uh, communications with, um, 20 characters or so, then they were able to completely decipher the string of text due to this one particular weakness um, that Enigma had with not being able to encrypt one letter as itself ever. I mean, that just really underscores how like the the worst enemy, you know, that like our secret messages have are ourselves and like right. the way that we write them. It's not, I mean, sometimes it is just the issue is like you don't, your, your code, is, you know, whatever uh, encryption isn't as secure as it should be. But other times, as in many of these examples throughout history, it's just like you are leaving breadcrumbs and like the structure of language completely like abstracted from what is actually in the words. Or that you see on the page. Um, But I think, like, in addition to those things, it's worth thinking about how something like the Caesar cipher may have been more useful than we might think in Julius Caesar's time. So, first of all, according to Joseph Pierprizic's Fundamentals of Computer Security, many of Caesar's enemies would have been illiterate, 
for, for one, and still others may not have recognized it as code at all, and instead may have mistaken that jumble of letters that they saw for another language they just didn't know. Um, but it should be mentioned that, like, at the time, there were other issues. Like, for example, if you take for granted that the code is in English, it becomes a lot easier um, to, like get at these sort of structural patterns in the language. Um, obviously, you know, as, as mentioned there, it helps to be able to, you know, read any language, right? Like a lot of these things that are sort of characteristic of that time that made that a much more secure method, in addition to the fact that they're just, you know, that was sort of state of the art at the time. It should be mentioned, however, that it's also thought that Julius Caesar used different, more complex methods of encoding messages. Um, and the Roman author Aulus Gellius, Rob, can I get a pronunciation check on that? Um, uh, the problem is there could be so many of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, A-U-L-U-S, last name G-E-L-L-I-U-S. I'm going to go with Aulus Gellius. Uh, okay. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> I probably Good would enough. have called him Gallius, so yeah. <laughs> Look, he, he he's not going to write in. So. <laughs> it's fine. We, we just um, weren't ready for this Jellius. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> how, does, how does that joke come up so often? I don't know. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, but in his in his work, Attic Nights, um, he says, there is even a rather ingeniously written treatise by the grammarian Probus concerning the secret meaning of letters in the composition of Caesar's epistles. And it's basically alluding to this like even like more sophisticated method that would have been at use at the time. However, the work by Probus that is referenced has been lost, which, oh. which I think you'll agree is the ultimate form of security. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so this week I learned that in medieval times... People amused themselves by urinating on their hands to see who was a virgin. So Not, not just in medieval times. Though. <laughs> <laughs> I do that every day. Come back to, to that. Sure. Hopefully not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways, so <laughs> this fact, which we'll return to at some point, uh, is actually part of a larger story that I want to tell you guys about sympathetic ink, or as it's better known, invisible ink. Um so when I first started looking into this, you know, my first association was like lemon juice and heat. Like you do this in elementary school science experiments and fairs and what have you and write like school sucks and then, you know, put a little flame under the paper and it shows up. Um, <laughs> and that's an example of like a very basic formula for invisible ink. So you have your invisible ink that you apply to a surface and then a reagent or a reactant that makes the ink appear, um, be it a chemical, uh, heat, like with the lemon juice, um, or even ultraviolet light. Um, and invisible ink is actually a type of steganography, which is a kind of encryption that's predicated on concealing your message rather than scrambling it. Um, so basically in some way where like you can be looking at it and not recognize it unless you know how to change it in order to be able to read it. Um, though it certainly can be and has been combined with cryptology uh, to hide messages really well. So make them invisible and then also make them inscrutable <laughs> unless you know what to do. <laughs> Um, so I wanted to share a few of my favorite anecdotes uh, from this really cool book titled Prisoners, Lovers, and Spies, The Story of Invisible Ink from Herodotus to Al-Qaeda by Christy McCrackus. And it covers, as the title suggests, uh, the history of invisible ink from antiquity. Um, and I, well, the last story that I'll mention is from the World War, so not quite as recent as Al-Qaeda. Um, but I found it really interesting because, as I said, I always, you know, associated invisible ink conceptually with just kind of like a fun hobbyist kind of thing to do or like an activity to while away the afternoons when I was a kid. Um, but it's had significant roles in espionage and encryption um, and even in love across times and cultures. So let's delve in. <laughs> um, 
So some of my favorite stories from Invisible Ink and Antiquity, um, one involves the Roman poet Ovid um, of Metamorphosis fame. Uh, he also wrote a sort of like relationships and seduction manual that was very popular um, in his time <laughs> called The Art of Love, which I have to say I want to look up and will probably come up at some point in another future podcast episode. So keep an eye out for that because hmm. what could they have been thinking? I'm intrigued. Or as he was known after that book, Ovid. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but one of his tips from the art of love one of uh, his tips <laughs> sorry i just waltzed right into that one which is very much my style <laughs> Um, so he recommended uh, that young women communicate with their clandestine suitors by writing messages in milk um, and then staining them with charcoal to reveal the messages. Um, and actually, friend of the pod, Pliny the Elder, alluded mm. to a similar technique uh, in his natural history, um, though in his case it involved writing with the extract of an herb called goat's lettuce. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's lettuce for goats. Um, yeah. But most intriguing to me, um, so... Possibly the earliest written recipe for an invisible ink uh, was by Philo of Byzantium, and he was a Greek engineer and writer in the late 200s BCE, uh, who described a technique whereby you write in tannic acid um, derived from oak galls, um, and I don't know if you guys have seen those, I actually haven't in person, but um, when you see like bumps on oak trees, um, mm -hmm. there's sort of like these bulbous like protrusions from the bark that basically form around the larva of gull wasps, which can like you know, lay their larva, or yeah, they'll lay their larva in the bark. Um, and then the trees kind of build this as a sort of like protective, almost like immune response to it. Hmm. Um, but you can extract uh, from that um, this tannic acid, and then they would basically write on the surface with this acid and then wash over it with iron sulfate uh, or vitriol to reveal the writing, which first of all, like for me, I just love the idea of like writing something like scathing and satirical and then literally <laughs> revealing it with vitriol. But also <laughs> yeah. this formulation, um, like this combination of tannic acid and iron sulfate from literally like tree blobs um, was the composition of ink in Europe for 15 centuries. So like Shakespeare's wow. plays, like box compositions, just like any... Any, like, you know, like, knowledge and creative output that happened during that time was all written in this same ink. Um, and kind of a challenge to this in terms of preservation now is that it's actually inherently corrosive. It is, you know, tannic acid is an, ac is an acid. Um, but I kind of love, too, that then makes it, like, you know, an invisible ink that is also, like, inadvertently, like, reversible. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that, like, it can disappear with time. And as you mentioned, Noah, that is, you know, the ultimate way to hide a message just <laughs> destroy I, it so no one can read it i again. wonder i wonder if, like i i just don't really know anything about how that works so basically the because it's acidic the ink goes like loses its color or somehow so i was imagine if what it does maybe is like etches the letters into like the rawhide that'd be great no so it just it disintegrates the paper after uh, okay. a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So if you look up like images of documents that have suffered from this, they'll just have kind of like sort of pieces of paper missing where they're like thicker sort of like strokes of the ink. Um, okay. But they, they, like the preservationists have figured out ways to kind of like go around that. But for certain documents that are still, you know, found after a long time and not stored ideally, um, that's something that they can suffer from. Um, I'm, I'm just curious, yeah. like if you're going to talk more about <laughs> why it's in this book. Because I feel like if you go to the library and you're like, hmm, where do I find the recipe for invisible ink? And I go to like 
the love and relationship section. It's like going pull out the Kama Sutra and you turn to the page to find out how to clean battery terminals when like the batteries explode. Like, oh, no. <laughs> it seems really out of place. Well, a lot a lot of things in the love section do require batteries. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> in the self love section, yes. <laughs> Um, but no, actually, the a more formal recipe or like series of recipes for invisible ink came much later. Um, I'm blanking. I should probably I could just look it up. Um, but like basically, uh, like a scientist and alchemist during the Inquisition wrote um, the natural arts. Like this is just gigantic tome that had all sorts of like ways to formulate things from nature, including lots and lots of invisible inks. The Inquisition. The Inquisition. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, very, very good, very good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, but so, yeah, so a few centuries after, you know, the ancient Greeks were messing around with milk and gallnuts, um, the Chinese were scribbling their secret messages using alum, otherwise known as aluminum potassium sulfate, which is what styptic pencils are made of. So, like, if you get nicks and cover them, it's that same chalky white stuff. Um, and those could be revealed with water. And the Arabs at the same time were also further developing uh, these aforementioned methods, as well as expanding them in terms of, like, the different additives and reagents that you could use um, to reveal messages. Um, and actually, the lemon juice and heat combination uh, dates all the way back to the Ottoman Empire, about 600 AD. So next time you do that at home in your kitchen to while away the hours, you can think of like, you know, the, the historical tradition that you are preserving. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Um, but so now to fast forward-ish to my fact. So in the medieval period, uh, secret writing gained associations with the occults and alchemy. Um, as you might expect, you know, it has this kind of mystical quality to it that you sprinkle a chemical and then words magically appear, or seemingly magically, alchemy. Um, but it was also used by artisans and craftspeople to record and keep secret the tricks of their trades. So like people who made dyes for textiles or metal workers or even recipes um, would kind of document their, you know, secret sauce. Um, in Invisible Ink, and then it was actually later, these were all later published um, and became bestsellers with the invention of the printing press uh, as so-called books of secrets, um, which I just love because it's like, these are published now on a massive scale. They are no longer secrets, but also like, that's very imaginable to me is like an innate element of human nature of like, of course, like, you know, all of this press comes out for Mary Trump's book and Fire and Fury and what have you and like slap secret onto a book and everyone's going to want to read it. So sure, <laughs> makes sense leaking all these methods um but yes so my fact comes from a parlor game uh that was referenced uh by macracus in this book um and basically the way that it worked is that uh well she found yeah so she found this recipe and, and then cited it in the book the way that it worked is that you know someone would put urine on their hand um and let it dry <laughs> because then you can't see it though you could probably still smell it but i don't want to imagine that too deeply um and then basically the trick would be that you'd gather your friends around and be like all right i'm going to sprinkle some ash in my hand and i'm going to do the sign of the cross and say all right like i'm gonna you know summon summon the heavens and they'll tell and they'll reveal whether i'm a virgin or not but secretly they would actually write like no in, on their hand with the urine beforehand and then while their friends were looking away like oh are they a virgin this is crazy what's going to happen they would like cavalierly blow off the excess ash and then no <laughs> on their hands. <laughs> and i have to wonder like did anyone actually do this or believe this but supposedly <laughs> well it's a thing ironically <laughs> pissing on your hand is one way to be a virgin forever there you go <laughs> <laughs> they were playing themselves 
Um, there, there also definitely is like a switch. I don't know exactly where in history that was, where people went from trying to convince everyone that they hadn't had sex to trying to convince everyone that they had. Right. And I don't know when in history that switch was. Like, when would that game have moved from writing yes in Ash to no in I'm Ash? I'm going to guess like the what? 1920s. Pro- oh. Prohibition era. Yeah. Because of all the Caesar salads. There you it was- go. Well, there <laughs> it is. Liberated. Well, there it is. Oh. I when, totally interpreted that as like what age in your life, and I was like, well, probably whatever oh, no, age no, no. you'd be willing to like piss on your hand to impress your friends. Well, that was that shockingly early for me. I was, I was very, I was just as likely to piss on my hand or my parents' hands, <laughs> ceiling, really, whatever. Don't roll me on my back. I don't. It's still good advice to this day. <laughs> I'm just trying to remember when when the movie Easy A came out because I feel like that was the uh, that was kind of I don't know if that was a new turning point. Oh yeah, the what? The movie Easy A with uh, was that Emma Stone? It's like the Scarlet Letter. Yeah, like it's like the new Scarlet Letter. Thing. Oh, I've never like, seen maybe, it. I'm not familiar. Maybe it was when the Scarlet Letter came out. <laughs> well, that was one time. Somewhere between the Scarlet Letter and the movie Easy A, there was a cultural <laughs> switch. <laughs> Just somewhere between that timeline. That's that's just a small fragment of time. If only historians had any records about like women's health in that whole time period. (laughs) But unfortunately, they're either lost or encoded. That's not that's not altogether untrue. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't a point of investigation for a long time. Let's just say. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah. Still still lags in many ways. Yeah. Um but so to leap forward a few more uh decades, centuries, what have you. Um so, you know, invisible ink continued to be used throughout the ages. Mary Queen of Scots used a combination of ciphers and invisible inks to communicate to her supporters from prison, um, you know, to plot rebellions and try to assassinate and overthrow her sister, just typical like sister drama, you know how it is. Um, <laughs> a type of invisible ink was also invented by James Jay, uh, the brother of John Jay. Um, though hmm. the recipe has actually been lost to time. Again, very effective <laughs> in messaging. Um, that You've was gotta used stop among... writing it in invisible ink. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it works too well. Um, but it was used among the Culper Sky Ring. Or, no. <laughs> the, it was used among the, the Culper... Sky Ring. <laughs> sky Ring. <laughs> like a science fiction plot. <laughs> there you go. Um, and it was used among the Culper Spy Ring uh, to communicate British tactics um, that were happening in New York to George Washington during the American Revolution. Hmm. One of the things I looked into when I was looking into basically, like, the Caesar cipher is not a super effective uh, method of encryption. But there is, like a possible situation where you'd want to make something look like it was secret, but not actually be difficult or like maybe just be like slightly more than trivial. So that like to, to decode so that the person who intercepts it by design thinks that it's like real intelligence that they've gathered. And that you could then put in that message, like, you know, that, Oh, we're moving our troops North when really you're moving it West. So it's like designed to be broken and like lead the people astray. So I was trying to look up um, if like, you know, that had happened over time. And apparently one of the examples was uh, of the British using that against uh, the Americans in the soon to be Americans in the Revolutionary War. Huh. Mm. Jerks. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> You're not fighting fair. <laughs> As we hop, hopped down from the tree, shot them and ran away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Listen, gorilla warfare was what it was. And if they can't handle the big gorillas coming at them, <laughs> they shouldn't have brought the war to the zoo. <laughs> we wailed on them. Okay. <laughs> well, then we brought it to the aquarium for that. <laughs> The British uh, did have the Jer RAF. Oh my God, no! Okay. What a reach! <laughs> if you're a giraffe, you can reach. Okay. 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 All right. So the last uh, anecdote that I wanted to share um, was from World War One. So it involves uh, a group called the Lemon Juice Spies. And surprisingly, it's not a kid show. It was an actual group of spies <laughs> in World War I. Um, just, well, actually, there's a few dudes, but two of them are the main characters in the story. Um, so they're both German spies, uh, Carl Muller and John Hahn. Um, and they were both stationed in England and basically communicating British troop movements to the Germans, again, using this very classic lemon juice and heat uh, invisible ink combination. Um, so their letters were eventually discovered by the British Postal Censorship, um, which was headquartered in London and basically just screening mail going into and out um, during World War I. Um, and firstly, well, so I'm telling this story because it is just like a series of bumbles that I think are... A bit hilarious and also very necessary. But the first was that they very easily traced the letters back to uh, both Muller and Han because Han was signing all of the letters with his real name, <laughs> which I feel like that's wow. the first rookie mistake, like real, real rookie mistake. But then, you know, upon doing this, uh, Scotland Yard got a warrant to search his house um, and they arrested him and Muller and three other spies involved in the lemon juice ring. Um, and... When they were on trial, the following items were submitted as evidence in court. So from Han's apartment, um, a lemon riddled with pen nib-sized holes, which just like, I love the mental image of like exhibit A, and it's just like a rotting lemon with a bunch of holes in it. Um, and then from Muller's apartment, a drawer of lemon pieces and pens clogged with lemon pulp. Um, they also found a full lemon in his coat pocket at a rest. I guess he just carried around for easy access in case he had to jot something down for his memory. Um, and when asked what it was by the police, he pointed to his mouth and said, uh, my, my tea? Oh. Yeah, totally. But I just, I can't reconcile how easily they were caught because like, like literally they're the evidence their weapon would have you was biodegradable. Like, just compost that <laughs> shit when you're done. <laughs> and wow. It could have been so simple. <laughs> like, it is super remarkable that, like, to be defined by such a simple thing, it would be like, nowadays, it's like, oh, I'm like, I'm the guy that always, like, I don't, I can't imagine a good one. I'm the guy that leaves a banana peel in the house that I rob. And you, like, I don't know why <laughs> you would just, do that. It's just your it's signature. Just, that's your thing. <laughs> It's like the wet bandits from Home Alone, but just like a little Mario Kart. <laughs> but like, you come to my apartment, and I just have a thousand bananas, and I always have bananas. Like, like it's so unnecessary to be that prepared. <laughs> and you'd be the how, banana. Bandit. How many homes do you imagine this person robbing? <laughs> like, if they leave a banana, I mean, presumably they've got to like rob the house like before it goes off. This is mm. a thousand houses in the time it takes for a banana to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's why I think it's so ridiculous that like not only were there lemons in all their drawers and on their desks, exactly. they're in their pockets. In their pockets and their drawers, like just the pens like filled with lemon pulp. It's like just just try to be good at your job. I just imagine you, you like, open the briefcase and it's just lemons. <laughs> 
bouncing out across the courtroom floor. Yeah, you know, they could have like had a sideline like with a lemonade stand. Like, <laughs> oh, we are selling lemonades. <laughs> Nothing funny happening here. <laughs> Definitely would have been their friend. This is not suspicious. <laughs> So we're all talking about uh, secret languages and secret codes. Um, Cryptology itself is the science of making and breaking those codes. Um, There are some examples of encryption that are a little bit um, less known. And so what I want to talk about tonight is the Navajo code. Um, The Navajo code is the only spoken military code never to have been deciphered. Um, And it was used in World War II. Um, It's really a really interesting story, um, mainly because the reason why the Navajo language was chosen um, is because it's it's a language that has very complex forms of conjugations and sounds and structure. Um, and at the time, uh, during World War II, there were about 30 white Americans who could speak it. Only 30 white Americans. Uh, no German, Italian, or Japanese person had ever studied the language either. Um, so the language on its own would have been perfect, but a code of sorts was applied to it. Um, but the code itself was language-based. So it, the cipher and the key really didn't have much to do um, with traditional encryption methods. Um, the, also, the Navajo tribe in the U.S. was a really, really large tribe. And so there, were, there was a potentially very large pool of code talkers um, that they would be able to choose from. And so four major points about the, the Navajo language said that made it um, an incredible encryption method. Um, Navajo is a tonal language. It has four tones, low, high, rising, and falling. Um, The meaning of a word depends upon the tone in which it is spoken, like most tonal languages. Uh, But speakers of non-tonal languages miss hearing the essential elements. Um, And so distinctions in words can be completely and totally looked over. Uh, The linguistic structure of Navajo, it's actually radically different from all the other indigenous languages. It wouldn't be easy to understand the meaning of a Navajo sentence, even if a literal word-by-word translation were available. So um, on its own, again, it's just this remarkable form of communication um, that was relatively unknown at the time. Um, Also, um, it belongs to a different family of languages. So even an expert in indigenous languages um, really wouldn't be able to decipher what was being said. Also, next to nothing was published about this language anywhere in the world. So even um, academics couldn't go and look things up or find um, any references for it. So it was a really strong code to be used. That that sounds so crazy, like in terms of what it must have been like, like the Navajo people, what kind of interactions do they have with other indigenous peoples? Like, did they just know other languages better? Or like, were they really just very isolated? Like, how did, how did it become so unique? Uh, yeah, I don't know a tremendous amount of the origins. Um, I think that it's traced back to um, tribes that were in Canada. Um, and so there was an isolation factor for that. 
Um, but again, indigenous languages didn't evolve the same way that European languages did. So, um, so there are there are these distinguishing differences between them, um, and Navajo happens to be one of those that's just um, really really diverse. Um, yeah. So um, one of the things that that was you know, a great advantage to using this was that it was instantaneous. So back then, if you wanted to um, encode or encrypt a message, or you wanted to communicate a written message securely, you had to actually type it out, and then you had to pass it off to a code person who would then encipher it. Um, and that could take uh, an hour or two. I think um, the rough estimated time was about two hours. But with Navajo Code Talkers, um, this was instantaneous. They just spoke to each other directly straight over the radio. Um, so a code could be received and then passed off within minutes. Um, and that was a really, really big advantage um, in terms of comms, especially in real time, field coordinates, and really important things that needed to be communicated immediately. Uh, also interesting to this story is that the Navajo, um, after the war was over, the U.S. government forbid them to ever talk about their involvement and their unique contributions um, because of the secrecy of their code. And so we didn't even know until 1968 um, this, this incredible code that, that could never be broken um, was thanks um, entirely to our indigenous population. Um, and so it, it was made public in, in, the, in the late 60s. And then sometime in the, in the 80s, they were honored with some sort of commemoration day. But for all that time, this, you know, you know, wicked difficult code that nobody could crack um, was, you know, a product of the Navajo language. And just the combination that we still haven't cracked it, but that it could be deciphered, like, upon hearing is very surprising to me. Like, it's just like, right. oh, like, it's not even, like, in its regular use, it didn't require a lot of, like, sitting down and taking apart. But it was just, it's just that intricate. Right. That you kind of have to know it or not. That's really cool. Yeah, so they had, it was a language code. So um, in Navajo, they didn't actually have militarized language. So they just came up with their own natural words that they then uh, attributed to something specific. So for example, the word turtle in Navajo meant tank. Um, so the code speakers just knew those those changes. It was, a, it was an actual language code. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and so basically, a lot of the a lot of they were just regular words for which became like euphemisms exactly, for military. Exactly. Calls. Interesting. Right. But they were so hard to hear phonetically that you would be like turtles, 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 and they'd still be like, "What are they right. saying?" Like, like they wouldn't be able to separate that. That's wild. It is. It's really it's really interesting, and it's obviously it's you know really a departure from actually you know more classical forms of cryptology um which was also you know made it even more difficult for people to figure it out and they were just you know people were really wilding like what is this you know trying to take the phonetic sounds that they heard and trying to figure out what cipher um you know it could possibly be or what the key might be um and they they could never break this code and actually during the time the japanese were um you know, brilliant code breakers. So every code that the Americans came up with, the Japanese would crack it almost instantly. Um, so this proved to be really, really, really critical. This was, you know, a really important part, a really important role for the U.S. Um, 
in the big World War II game <laughs> in terms of getting comms across. Um, also, just to backtrack as a couple of fun, fun things to throw in before we wrap, um, coded language actually you know, goes back to the beginning of language itself, as far as we know. Um, the earliest known code was an inscription carved into a rock by an, by an Egyptian scribe in 1900 Whoa. BC. So that's 3,900 years of encrypted code, um, which is interesting <laughs> in itself. People always got secrets. Yes, yes. <laughs> Um, another early example is a small enciphered stone tablet that was found on the banks of the Tigris River. That was uh, 1500 BC. And it contained a hidden recipe for glazing pottery, mm. which at the time would have been really, mm. really valuable for artisans to not, you know, want their recipes known. Wow. And then in Sparta, this is another interesting form of encryption. Uh, in Sparta, a physical instrument was used to encipher uh, messages between legions. Um, and it's called a skittily. And it was a type of transposition Ooh, cipher. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you would use a cylinder of a set diameter. Um, the, the diameter itself was the key. So anyone that you were sending this message to had to have the exact same diameter. And it would wrap a piece of um, parchment around it and um, write down the side of it so that you had to have that specific diameter in order to be able to see the message. Unraveled, it would be completely scrambled, just letters all over the place. Um, and that's mm. from the seventh century BC. So those are all you know, slightly different uh, forms of encryption. Um, and this Navajo code is you know, just another different format. Uh, that's wow, really that's super cool. <laughs> I think also recently, I just wanted to say it's uh, relevant to this, is that the, you know how the Washington DC football mm. team is changing That's right. Mm -hmm. um, Jonathan Nez, who's the president of Navajo Nation, suggested that they should rename the team Code Talkers. Yeah. Oh, that's oh, great. You know what? It's so relevant, and I didn't even know that. <laughs> it's also just a very cool yeah. team. It is. Yeah. It is. <laughs> and so we are on to the final section of today's show, our crypto quiz. All right, so I've got eight questions for you guys. Do I need a pen? You you know, you might. I tried to avoid any, like, real code breaking in the quiz. Oh, <laughs> I was so ready to break a code. But So the good news is at least two of the questions, Man. at least two of the questions will have some kind of decoding element. Um, mm, all right. Being in audio media, it is a little hard to do a lot of encryption. Um, but you'll see as we go through. And in fact... Even with question number one, we might have, you might, you might want a sheet of paper. So I'm going to rephrase them a little <laughs> okay. bit. So I have a very good feeling about you guys getting this based on how the episode has gone so far. But, okay. but question number one, and I'm going to cut some of the backstory. Can you decode this message? G-B-D-U-T-N-B-D-I-J-O-F. You say it again. It's G B D U T N B D I J O F. Um, are there G B D U T N B D I J O F? Yes. Are there spaces anywhere in there? There's a space where, uh, sorry, where I, after the T, before the N. Okay. Just want to make sure. Yeah. 
So yeah, it is a five and then seven. Hmm. It's fax machine. There oh, she is. Machine. It is. <laughs> it's, it's a Caesar. It's just over by one. Yes, it is. Uh, Minus one. Yeah. It's a Caesar cipher <laughs> of one. Yeah. Again, I was looking at it. So many in my head I was going through. Uh, it could also be wood counter. W-O-W-O-U-L-D-C-O-U-N-T-E-R. Ooh. Uh, it could also be. Um, what? No, I, I, I didn't come up with anything else. Wow. Nice. Could it really? I went I went deep. I wasn't thinking Caesar. Gosh. Fax machine. All right. Yeah. We're good. Fax machine. And I, I was like, you know, question one, I'll start off easy. And I was originally going to say, using the cipher uh, in vogue for 1,500 years after a one-time national leader had developed it, please use this. Um, but you, you clearly did not need it. Uh, so yeah, that's a season. I I also want to say there's another solution to this. Uh, it's if you go one to the right, it's fax machine. If you go nine to the right, it's Exulcazuzafu. <laughs> <laughs> that's the extra that's, credit answer. <laughs> that's true. I had not expected it. <laughs> but yeah. Ooh, there's another good one. Plus, plus twenty is Majaz Theopul. <laughs> These are all so fun to say. <laughs> all right i'm done but yeah Sorry. so that's that's our caesar cipher or our nth shift right. cipher so question one nicely done uh you've already uncovered fax machine uh <laughs> question number two in 1467 leon alberti designed a disc with two concentric alphabets where letters in one are paired to reveal the true letter in the other this is the exact same mechanism used in what ovaltine product Repopularized in 1983. Decoder rings. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. So that is the that is the decoder the ring. Famous decoder ring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is essentially it is exactly an Alberti disc, um, except if you look in the movie, the one in the movie has an alphabet running around the outside, and then the numbers one to twenty six running around the inside, um, which is essentially the same as having two alphabets. Um, right. But it, it's an extra level of, of hiddenness. Uh, and I, I referenced 1983. Does anyone want to just tell us why 1983? When it was repopularized? Uh, because of A Christmas Story? Exactly. That's when A nice. Christmas Story came out. Nice. Um, and every kid wanted a BB gun and a decoder ring. <laughs> well, <laughs> You'll shoot your also, eye out. <laughs> You'll shoot your eye out. Um, but going back to the time, not of a Christmas story, but of a Christmas carol, mm. um, something quite similar to that. It's a Vignier cipher. And that's mm. basically like the there's sort of like sort of sliding alphabets past each other. And the basically it's sort of a Caesar cipher where every single letter has like a different shift. Uh, and mm. that shift is determined by a key, which, um, you know, can have various properties that make it more or less secure. But that uh, general principle was thought, um, was called, uh, and this is again French, it's called Le Chiffre Indechiffrable. <laughs> Maybe. Um, and that's supposed, that was supposed to stand for the indecipherable cipher. Um, and I think it was actually, uh, it was um, Charles Dodgson uh, of, mm. of Lewis Carroll, mm. real name fame, yep. um, who in a, I think it was, I want to say 1863, which is why I'm sort of throwing it around the Christmas Carol era, um, uh, said that 
it was uh, it was an unbreakable cipher, but he did not know, neither did anyone else, that just a few years early, secretly, Charles Babbage had broken it, but never published That's the results. Right. Hmm. Uh, and then a little, I forget who eventually like published it, but somebody eventually showed that it wasn't, in fact, unbreakable. Wow. But as segues go, I think <laughs> Christmas, Christmas Story, Christmas Carol was worth it. <laughs> and speaking of Christmas Carol, if you love old British things... <laughs> Um, question number three. So I was originally going to give you the poet and ask for the poem, um, but you're doing so well. I think I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, deprive you of both and ask for the poet and poem. Um, and so oh, I'm out already. <laughs> we'll try it. <laughs> Count me out. So a British poet fond of using acrostic devices in his poetry to drive home symbolic points, um, wrote a very famous poem about a fall from grace. In 2018, a graduate student found the word fall in acrostic form, triple interlaced. Um, can you name the poem where he, this poet hid the word fall? Because it's a poem about a fall from grace. Um, and he, he used it in a triple interlaced acrostic, which I'll explain shortly. And if that's, if that's too much, I will give you the poet. <laughs> I don't know. Would you consider Milton a poet? <laughs> I mean, if he wrote poetry in meter, I certainly would. Yeah. No, I'm, so, okay, like, if it's Milton, what would be his big poem? Paradise Lost. Exactly. I was just going from the, I was going from the, oh, from, from the, the, from the, con- the uh, yeah. yeah, the, that part. Yeah. So that's exactly it. Yeah. Um, wow. So you guys don't need the poet. <laughs> but yeah, so the, the poet is John Milton and his poem is Paradise Lost and this is okay. It's one of those epic poems that's yeah. that's really a book, but <laughs> yeah, I mean it's actually ten books. <laughs> yeah, um, but it is quite a quite a lengthy read, but it is all in verse. Um, and so this this is an amazing story. I found um, that in 2018, a graduate student uncovered this like really deep hidden meaning. Um, and so there's actually like this is not the first time. So. Uh, Milton's now famous for working a bunch of acrostics in, specifically in Paradise Lost. Um, the best example was in the 70s. Uh, one of like a poetry scholar found the word Satan over the five lines where Satan is speaking. Oh, I remember hearing about this. It's super interesting. But like he's like uh, Satan in the poem is the serpent. And he's saying, oh, I'm not Lucifer. I'm some other snake. Don't worry. And the first five letters of those oh, lines okay. are Satan. And so. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, so it's a really brilliant like literary device, um, and this poet and or this poetry scholar in the '70s was like, it's so easy to lose sight of what Satan looks like that we didn't see it for 300 years, written right in front of us. Um, just that's a nice allegory. It was the uh, snake all along. <laughs> but so, the greatest the greatest trick the devil played was convincing us he was a different snake. <laughs> Um, but then like scholars then started to pour over his works to be like, well, did he do this a lot? Cause we don't, we didn't really have a, a record of this. So another example is in the line where Adam takes the first bite of the fruit, the three lines that encapsulate that action spell. Whoa. W O E. Whoa. Whoa. Whoa now. <laughs> don't eat that fruit. <laughs> um, and the authors of that analysis who, by the way, they went through every line of like this massive poem and then paradise found like the follow-up and all of milton's works um they found like those two big examples and then they they were like we also found the words toad dog rats and goof 
but they're likely. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's well, this. That might have been yeah, an I think it's this with a, a plus thirteen Caesar cipher. <laughs> there you go. So they're quite excited. Maybe I mean maybe it was a Caesar cipher and an acrostic. <laughs> well, was it G U V F? Would they have noticed that? <laughs> oh, probably not. <laughs> this, this is goof like goofy from Disney World, but oh, okay. Nice. okay. So he said the most recent acrostic discovery though was in 2018. Yes, and so okay. that was Satan. Oh no! So Satan was the first one in the no. 70s. Okay. Then they found all these other right, ones, right. and then they found it was like a, a like, or they attributed it to the fact that this was actually a literary device going back as far as Virgil, uh, who used Mars as an acrostic when he was writing about Mars, the Roman oh, god of war. I read about that. Yeah, in the Aeneid, and then when right. Dante used the word Lu L U E, which is plague, nine times in Dante's Inferno. Uh, as an acrostic so like little easter eggs like that but so this the fall thing um it's a lines where adam and eve are saying like okay we should each make the decision ourselves like we won't we won't go in together and so it's two separate people falling um and so the acrostic goes f f a a l l um which is like why you would miss it the first time But then the lines below it are where Satan like encourages them and takes them in. And those lines go a F. So if you read it upwards, it's F a L L into theirs. And so this, Ah. so this graduate student, um, she wrote her like a thesis about this, how this is a very intentional and very complex acrostic at this pivotal point in the poem about the fall from grace, also mirroring Satan's fall from grace, and then his, like, how it sneaks up to affect humans. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so really deep, really, like, more than you thought acrostic poetry could do, maybe. Um, And it took 350 years for someone to notice this, despite the fact it's one of the most well-read poems in English literature. Um, That's amazing. The best part, though, and this is not a joke, is the graduate student who found this and a theme that always, always pervades Fax Machine. Her name was Miranda Fall. (laughs) Just incredible. And it's it's P-H-A-A-L. But like, she, oh no! But she that would counts, that she, counts. She would tell you, "Hi, I'm Miranda Fall," and just like, <laughs> oh, blew my mind. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh man! Wow. So yeah, another notch, another one for nominative determinism on Fax Machine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm much less impressed with T. S. Eliot for being an anagram of toilets now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's really got to work his game up. <laughs> All right, question number four. The Pioneer 10 and 11 spacecrafts contain a basic cipher with information all about humanity. However, what is the key that they used to decode this cipher, which they hoped was truly universal? And so the idea is no matter where you are in the universe, you would have, you know, with sufficient study, knowledge of this. I feel like it's going to be like the Fibonacci sequence or something. <laughs> so I, I, I'll i just well, say... What did they use on the record on... Voyager, didn't they have? Um, so on on Voyager, they, they I think had they had Euler's think. formula, e to the yeah. i pi. Yes, yeah, that was mm-hmm. it. That was yeah. it. And so I think both of those are better answers than this one because <laughs> the Fibonacci, like just based on when humans <laughs> figured it out, the Fibonacci sequence is old. Euler's number is right? still kind of old. This like right? this answer. It it is extremely elemental, but it requires a lot to actually study it. Like it's like an atom structure or something. Elemental clue. Like a, yeah. 
like little electrons floating around the nucleus. Like basically, <laughs> that really expects a lot of the aliens. It really, really? does. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So the the answer is they have a cipher that is laid out in the uh, the properties of a hydrogen atom. Oh man! And it's like why? <laughs> yeah i don't know and it's like well once they figured out the mass they'll still surely know the charge and like the space and like no what are you talking about i I find this a really (laughs) pathetic cipher key um but someday an alien an alien grad student is going to be studying the wreck of like our whatever satellite we sent out and they're going to be like oh my god (laughs) my last name (laughs) is hydrogen spelled in a weird way my destiny <laughs> <laughs> oh that makes me really happy <laughs> okay so unbelievable i'm a little disappointed by that one yeah i know i wanted better <laughs> that wasn't nasa's a team working on that one nasa yet another enemy of the pod <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Go to outer space and stay there, NASA. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, question number five. <laughs> talk, talk about Ad Astra. <laughs> okay. Oh. <laughs> okay. We really are kind of down on NASA, aren't we? <laughs> Apparently. Because we peaked oh, with no. Clyde Tamba, and then it was astronaut <laughs> farts, and now we're here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. All right, but question number five. Uh, so questions one and five in this quiz are your ciphers. So this is the second one I'm going to ask you to solve. Oh, boy. So I'll give you hints as All we right. go. But um, solve this cipher. Try the first answer that you don't want. When is it true? When is it true? When is it true? So the full cipher. Try the first answer that you don't want. When is it true? And the trick here is laid out like a riddle, but you shouldn't try to riddle it away. So I'll slowly give you hints. This is okay. this is also a, a relatively common cipher type for text. Uh, so not so much um, like a character cipher. Um, it was featured in an episode of Sherlock season two, if you like Sherlock. <sighs> I do, but I... I don't remember it that well. Man, Mm. I haven't watched it. Okay. So this is one that you could literally, if if I said it again and you knew the the crack, you could get it. Like, you wouldn't have to sit to decipher it. You'd only have to hear the right parts. So I'll give you one more listen, if that helps. Try the first answer that you don't want. When is it true? The answer you want is true. Yes. So that is a skip cipher. I see. Oh, brother. Mm-hmm. I see. <laughs> I see. I so it, it's a tricky one. And it is like, uh, like, like, in terms of ciphers, it's one of the ones you can get just sitting there listening to it, which makes it hard. Right. Because yeah, yeah. you don't, you don't seem to, it doesn't seem to be a cipher there. It seems too obvious. Yep. I kind of like the sort of context. Like, I like the idea that you could use that people might know the answer to that is like, oh, you have to use the answer you want is true, but then use the other one. So the answer would really be 
try first that don't win it <laughs> and then somehow somehow you could like hide something in that like there'd be a second layer based on like that inside joke maybe of like you know that's yeah if you're well that was a good one for a podcast actually that yeah, yeah. that was that was the struggle was what's a cipher that you can talk out and that isn't incredibly boring <laughs> I, you know what? I, the only the only reason I got that was that you kind of said it in the like iambic pentameter way mm. of like st- alternating the stress. Mm, I was wondering and why was, you were doing I, that. That's the f- yeah. yeah, I was wondering too. Yes, didn't jump out at me. I was like, Rob's just being a robot. It's fine. Whatever. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> okay. Uh, question number six. <laughs> a robot. I'm sorry. That took me a second. <laughs> Rob. Uh, Rob. <laughs> the answer you want. <laughs> Beep morph. <laughs> that value is false. That, it, it was very Dalek-esque. Wait, does, yeah. does Robot Rob have wine borps? <laughs> robot. Robot. Wine borps. That's so cute. Uh, <laughs> wine borps. That's the funniest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> And I now want there to be like a oh. Billy Shears-esque conspiracy for the pod where everyone's like, this is the episode that Rob was slapped out for a robot. Just <laughs> <laughs> tracing the evidence from there. Uh, that's funny, but that's invalid. Ray, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, don't, I don't think we've explained to you that there's a very long-running thing. and It's not like an intentional joke so much as it is just in every episode. Uh, we and it's not always wine, but there are wine burps that are very audible. <laughs> just from we're all drinking, and so that you inevitably hear like. <laughs> it's fantastic radio. <laughs> <sighs> wine burps. Who does the editing around here? Oh, no, it does. I, oh, so you we, get to hear all the you get to hear all the wine burps then. Yes. Um, in in our original um, blooper episode, which was like extra little bits and just us fucking up, um, <laughs> there were there was a lot of this <laughs> and a lot of the like, whoo boy, <laughs> and this is when we all used to record in the same room too. Yeah. Didn't you make like oh, a little man. supercut at one point too, or just like a bunch of them stitched together? Yeah, it's <laughs> not pretty. <laughs> a little visceral, uh, but it's fun. Anyway, okay, <laughs> so. Question six. We're almost there. Uh, question number six. In Dan Brown's Angels and Demons, what calligraphic method is used to hide words upside down or to inscribe words read in both directions? Oh, what's it called? It's not an It's not an anagram. What's it called where it's like the same thing? I was going to uh, say anagram. Yeah. yeah, but it's purely... Palindrome. Or palindrome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's something. It's something. Li- it sounds kind of like anagram, but it's not. And so the trick is how it can be read, if you read it mm-hmm. forwards. A- ambi ambigram. Yeah, an ambigram. ambigram. Okay. Oh, I like that. And so, but it's like purely. It's purely, as you said, like cal- cal- calligraphic. Mm-hmm. I guess is the way to say it. Um, where it's just how, it's like the way that the letters are written that makes them ambiguous enough that you could kind you could be like, oh, I could see how that's a, both a P and a D. Yeah, you know? right. and oh, it's it's often it's often written either so that you can read the word right side up and then when you flip it it's the same or it's the same. when you read it it's a new word so like in in the book i think he does um there's like a box where you can read it's like a, a painting but it's the word sin and every way you read it it reads sin or something like that um or it's like Ooh. fire one way and water the other way 
Uh, it's a really cool technique. They're really, they're really beautiful when you look at them. Sometimes they're like in an actual ge uh, geometric shape mm, that the yeah. calligraphy is in, and you flip them around, and yeah. All right. Two questions left. <laughs> okay, okay. Just, let's go. Come on. We're so close. <laughs> All right. Question number seven. Developed at MIT in the 70s by three engineers, what end-to-end -end encryption utilizes both a public key and a private key from the recipient? making the information encrypted much safer. And so... PGP. Oh, sorry? PGP encryption. Oh. PGP, pretty good privacy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that is true. This is... So I'm actually going for a specific PGP, um, uh, which is named after the... Yeah. So it's... Just repeat the question. Developed at MIT in the 70s by three engineers. And those three engineers, they actually led their, lent their names to the very specific kind of example of this. The RSA, yeah, RSA encryption key. Is that what you mean? Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. Yes, Ray. <laughs> Sorry, my Just God, I'm like this is my world. Yeah. <laughs> Don't make me try to answer that question. Yes, Ray, I love it. I love the energy. Yeah. I'm like it's PGP. What do you mean? Really, I was, I was really revving over here. And I'm I'm sitting here being like she definitely knows better than me. <laughs> oh, oh shit. <laughs> But so RSA. So and, and that's right. RSA is like a subclass or like a specific type. <laughs> yes, that's I was correct. I was sitting over here like three <laughs> engineers at MIT. What did they develop? I was like carpal tunnel. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. Also true. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So, so RSA is kind of like, um, and I, it's a crypto system. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of the, I don't, it's not necessarily state of the art, but it's kind of state of trade. Like everyone uses this. Um, That's correct. and it's great because basically you, you receiving the message, tell the message how to get encrypted and then you encrypt it later with a different decryption key. Um, That's right. so, so far I, I believe has not been like successfully cracked or like um, like like that specific part of it has not been you can kind of crack around it I guess but like that actual sending process is very secure yeah that's the that's the most standard that's the most secure standard form of encryption that we have currently that for use on the internet yeah wow so crack that code and you own the internet <laughs> it's like a sweepstakes well, you, like. know, you, <laughs> you utilize the public key for sending right mm. but then the receiver has uh, private key to encrypt so it's very difficult to to crack that but with quantum computing which is the next yeah phase of uh, technology that will be you could brute force something like that uh really quickly so not for long not for long mm, bummer. you always find a way to crack it so <laughs> well for now keep texting people things that you don't want anyone else to see because for now they're sort of safe. <laughs> Send nudes while you can. That's it. Use signal. Use signal. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And our eighth and final question. Uh, in 2012, the book Regenesis became the first book translated into what coded language? You have to give us. Uh, mm -hmm. it, wait, has that coded language been referenced in this? episode um stunningly i don't think we've talked about this code okay yeah i was is like that just... the, is that the rna or is that the dna is that the book oh, that they did in dna shit. is yes, that how that it is? is oh yeah yeah wow. yeah yeah 
I, you know, the only reason why I thought that is because I was like, ooh, he's a scientist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you. Most people, you were the clue, Rob. Most people, when they look at Rob, they do go, ew, he's a scientist. <laughs> oh, I didn't say ew. <laughs> but it's, it's like you said, Noah, the breadcrumbs are there all along. <laughs> yeah, that's totally right. So the, the book Regenesis is actually a book about basically writing in the code of DNA um, hmm. I said the book was translated. My uh, hint to you was going to be it was actually transcribed. transcribed. <laughs> you jerk. Um, <laughs> but so it is. It is. If anyone asks, it is the book for which there are the most copies on Earth. They have seventy billion <laughs> copies of this book. <laughs> However, it is not well read. <laughs> oh my um, but yeah, that was the the team up in the kind of synthetic DNA team up at Harvard, MIT. George Church was one of the primary authors. Um, and it was actually a big scandal at the time because the, the team up there had also just made the first synthetic cell, I believe, with Craig Venter. Uh, and so the idea of like throwing around DNA lightly was like really frowned upon because initially they wanted in the, the book cover of every book to be like a little uh, like sealed off thing with just the DNA of the book. Um, <laughs> what a racket! Like, <laughs> yeah, and they would have charged like a bunch more for it, and like they they clearly made it. They have seventy billion transcripts of this book, um, and it costs like whatever, whatever, like just a few. Yeah, I mean that's honestly like two days of PCR. That's nothing. exactly. That's why I'm like, really, that's how you need to make money. I'm in the wrong. I'm in the wrong business. Clearly. But yeah. <laughs> But they they decided not to do it because of concerns over bioterrorism, um, bioethics, like all kind of, like ridiculous things that they were they, like, you can't just put DNA in a book. And you're like, every book you ever it's took. Not, it's not it's hard like, to get DNA. Also, there's already DNA on the book. It's everywhere. I've read enough contaminated experiments to know that. <laughs> Shit's everywhere. Where do you find it in the book where the pages are stuck together? <laughs> Uh, yes on that happy note (laughs) so excellent work everyone you've made it through the entire crypto quiz you've decoded me to the core way to go (laughs) so that's our crypto show thanks everybody for listening and ray it was wonderful to have you on this episode um is there anything upcoming you want to talk about oh well we'll have some exciting articles and short films um released on CorealisMagazine.com um, in coming weeks. So definitely check that out. Absolutely. So everyone go online, follow Coriolis Magazine on Twitter and Instagram and, and check out their website. You can also check out our website, FaxMachinePodcast.com. And please follow us on social media. We are on Instagram and Twitter at FaxMachinePod and on Facebook at FaxMachinePodcast. And if you'd like to follow us individually, I'm SweaterVestSCI, Noah, at arcs and sciences m at underscore em costa and ray where can we find you at doc rocket that's d-o-c-r zero c-k-e-t twitter and instagram fax machine is produced by rob frawley noah guyberson and emily costa with editing by noah guyberson our theme music is by anthony antonelli and our logo was designed by mike zola thanks everybody and we'll see you next time bye bye